live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are up to part three of this fascinating series on the Geniza. We're having overwhelming feedback from so many people didn't know the Geniza existed, and they definitely didn't know it was around the corner, at least in London. Well, there are many people who didn't know the Geniza existed in 1894, so they're just joining. <laughs> it's not much has changed. Yeah, exactly. It's been blowing a lot of people's minds how much history is around the corner that one can feel and have never been. So we're back to part three, and you've mentioned often throughout the previous two episodes artifacts that are over a thousand years old. Did you mean a thousand years old, or was this a figure of speech? No, so much of the collection is from the period of the Fatimid dynasty, which ruled in the Middle East, in Egypt, from uh, the end of the 10th century till 1171. Other parts of North Africa, like Tunisia, it was in Syria, Palestine, and Jews enjoyed a reasonable degree of tolerance, of prosperity, and quite a degree of religious freedom, by which I mean the authorities didn't enforce the laws of the covenant of Omar in areas such as having to wear distinctive clothing or distinctive signs on clothing. In fact, the Geniza documents have revealed data on non-Jews coming to Egypt in the 11th century in order to convert to Judaism. Now, one caliph was actually an exception to the rule, al-Hakim, who was in place from 996 to 1020 CE, and he mistreated non-Muslims during the second part of his reign. But conveniently, he disappears in very suspicious circumstances because he often went out to meditate. And on the 9th of the 12th of February, 1021, he leaves on a night journey to the hills outside of Cairo and never comes back. A search finds only his donkey and bloodstained garments, and the disappearance remains a mystery. Are you saying the Jews did it? No, I doubt the Jews were involved. The most likely culprit is his sister, um, <laughs> because his successor, who was placed there by his sister, uh, remains in power for quite a while. And in fact, from that moment on, the um, later Fatimids returned to their sort of traditional policy of tolerance. Um, although Geniza documents do show that on occasion, Jews were victims to the hatred of dignitaries within the court. Sometimes they were actually Christians who were trying to harass the Jews and bring about their dismissal from government posts. But the general economic policy of the Fatimids was very advantageous for the Jews. The dynasty succeeded in diverting trade in the India-Middle East region from 
arriving through the Persian Gulf to instead being diverted into, through the Red Sea, which then became the main artery of international trade. And the caliphs were interested in increasing this trade, uh, partly because they believed they could then win converts to their religion. So you're saying there was quite a degree of stability at that time. Yes. Is there a reason for it? Generally, back in the day, then religions weren't very kind to us. The economics worked well for everybody concerned. There were many partnerships between Muslims and Jews, as we'll come to later. And, you know, it was a time of peace as well, generally. Okay, thank you. Another point to clarify, if I may ask. So they get all this stuff to Cambridge. And two weeks ago, you mentioned the difference between what they examined pre and post World War Two. If you could speak a bit about that. So, yes, they have all this stuff, as you say, but pre-war, the focus is on religious texts. So, you know, Responsa, Talmud, copies of the Bible. And after World War II, that changes. The focus becomes social documents, um, like the letter that I mentioned last week. And there's one enormous area that comes to light, and that is the lives of women, especially married women in that period. And I am grateful to Amir Ashur for his work in this particular area. It was actually he who first showed me the Geniza collection in Cambridge. I was there with Rabbi Mordechai Becher on uh, his suggestion nearly 15 years ago, and we brought Rabbi Tatz with in fact, uh, if I'm making thanks, uh, I, I guess I'd like to also express my gratitude to Ben Althwaite, who's the head of the current Geniza unit, to Melanie Schmirer-Lee, and uh, also to Sarah Sykes for their help and their um, indulgence and patience, which <laughs> has been very useful. If anyone wants to donate to the Geniza unit in Cambridge, which is chronically underfunded and gets cut more every year, then, you know, please do so or get in touch with me. But yes, to get back to this area of married women, I mentioned prenuptial agreements last week, and there are many, there are dozens in the Geniza, but these 12th century prenups are very different from their modern cousins. Today's prenups are generally financial arrangements after a marriage ends, uh, often because the, the wealthier party wants to secure their assets in the event of a divorce. But marriage agreements from the Geniza are the opposite. They are about the marriage for the sake of the marriage and can have a wide range of uh, stipulations or conditions. And what is interesting is that in most cases, these stipulations actually support the rights of the bride, of the woman, which in the Muslim world during the medieval period is quite eye-opening. For example, in many such agreements, the wife has the right to choose where they live, to run her own financial affairs, and uh, so on. So the pure reason for this is to make the married couple like have a smoother life. Yes, I mean, you could put it that way. In fact, let's look at one of these agreements and sort of understand it close up. So in 1118, Sit al-Nasab takes her husband, uh, Solomon HaKohen, to Bet-Din because prior to their marriage, 
Solomon has promised in a prenup that he would supply her with her own living quarters, separate from his mother and sister, both of whom she disliked. (laughs) Okay. Now, since they've been married, the couple have been sharing a house with his female relations, and she is now at the end of her tether, and feels it's time for her husband to fulfill his promises. And after lengthy negotiations, an agreement is reached. The lower floor of the house would be set aside for the sole use of Sit al-Nasab, and neither Solomon's mother nor his sister would be allowed to enter, not even to ask for a single match. (laughs) And, you know, this is not an episode from a medieval soap opera. (laughs) It's an extract from a legal document. And in addition to the fascinating human story, it represents the improved status of Jewish women in 12th century Egypt. And what is perhaps even more either unknown or interesting is that this arises from economics. Trade with India influenced these agreements because at the beginning of the 11th century, the Jewish community of Fustat has Jews from everywhere, from Palestine, North Africa, the Mediterranean. And as I mentioned earlier, you even find Jews and Muslims cooperating in business ventures. Jews lived, in fact, in mixed neighborhoods. They weren't restricted to certain parts of the city. And the economy uh, was based on Mediterranean sea trade. But at the end of the 11th century, after the First Crusade, which starts in Europe in 1096, it really reaches Jerusalem in 1099. At that point, Mediterranean commerce was taken over by Italian merchants, and Jews were forced to turn their focus to the east, to India, which had a dramatic effect on marriage and family life. Because, you know, India might have had huge economic potential, but it was a dangerous journey many people lost their lives on the way and the dangers are described in many letters within the Gniza. You know, one trader wrote to his family, we're about to set sail in a ship with not a single nail of iron in it, but held together by ropes. May God protect with his shield. I'm about to cross the great ocean, not a sea like that of Tripoli, and I do not know if we will ever meet again. And another one writes to his wife, we will not be reunited unless God wills it. So it sounds like a way of getting out of the Aguna problem. By having these prenups. Well, we'll we'll come to that in a moment. So the, the first thing that happens is that it creates an Aguna problem or potential one because there are a number of them who are lost without trace. And it's not just sea travel. Merchants lose their lives traveling through the deserts from Egypt on the way to port cities. And just generally, the journey to India was a long one, and a round trip could take several years. Whereas Mediterranean trade, the journeys were comparatively short, they were pretty safe. And, you know, sometimes the traders took their wives and families with them. In India, that was to India, that was not possible. Merchants couldn't even stop off at Jewish communities en route because Aden was the only major port with a Jewish community. So prenups would include one of the following two conditions. Either a restriction on the husband's freedom of movement. 
which meant that there was a limit on the length of time that he was permitted to be absent from home. And often it's specified that he needs to ask permission of his wife before traveling. Or the husband is required before setting sail to give his wife a conditional bill of divorce, a get altnai, that would come into effect should the husband not return home within an agreed time. And that's quite frequently found in the documents and deals with the Aguna problem, as you mentioned. Beyond that, there is also protection of the wife's freedom of movement, which is not so much related to travel, but just the fact that uh, she is given greater rights because she has to deal with being at home alone, basically, at home, I mean, the whole city, the whole country, more frequently than would have been the case. So I'll quote an example. He promised not to prohibit her from going to any place that a respectable Jewish woman was supposed to visit, such as a synagogue, a public bath, and to parties of congratulation or condolence, nor would he forbid her to go to the house of her sister to see how she was. You know, you can imagine reading that out during Kriya Saksuba under the chuppah. But that would form part of this agreement, this, this marriage agreement. It's showing how restricted they were if such agreements need to be read under the chuppah. Yes, although any type of travel, even as minor as the one we just described, would still be unusual for the time. I mean, not to go and see your sister. Right. You know. And also what comes into being is that with these long journeys and absences, someone has to mind the shop at home. So, you know, the business interests that the husbands leave behind. Or women need to find employment to put food on the table for themselves and their children. And all of this contributes to the economic liberation of these women and to their increased freedom of movement because young women otherwise were reluctant to marry out of fear that they might be forever chained to a vanished husband, you know, the real concept of an aguna. And we have 67 Geniza marriage contract and uh, premarital agreements and court records from the 10th and 11th century. And Goitain, the researcher who we mentioned earlier, also looked at what is really extensive evidence uh, regarding widows, divorcees, fertility rates, childbirth, children raised by other people who were not their parents, inheritance process, and the divorce rate increased at that time, because generally any society with greater wealth has higher rates of divorce, because once people have freedom and more control, they look around for more choice. Well, fascinating. People have repeatedly sent him feedback. They'd love to hear more about communal life in history. So if you could describe to us and paint a picture, what was communal life like in those years in Egypt? Well, if we move from the home to the synagogue, shul politics, yeah. will that do it? Yes. Um, so uh, during the 10th and 11th centuries, many Jews arrived from Iraq, which resulted in a powerful Babylonian community. And there are quite some differences between the Eretz Yisrael, the Shami community, their customs, and the Babylonian. Firstly, allegiance is very different. 
the Babylonian community, even though it's in Egypt, has its allegiance to the Babylonian Gon, whose name we are more familiar with, whether at that time it was Rav Shriragon or of Haigon, or the Palestinian community was subordinate to the Shiva in Jerusalem, at least until the First Crusade. And Fustat was an important centre for the Palestinian Kehillah and the Eben Ezra synagogue, where the Geniza was located, was not Babylonian. It was uh, Shami, Eretz Yisrael, which is why, by the way, someone like the Rambam would never have prayed there. But anyway, his shul was almost 10 kilometers away because he didn't live in Fustat. He lived in Cairo itself. Isn't it almost a tourist attraction because people assume the Rambam daven there? Isn't it almost called the Maimonides Shul? No, Maimonides Shul. There is a Maimonides Shul. And it's That's not just, the Ibn Ezra one. It's just been redone. It was really in a state of decay. And it actually predates the Rambam probably by a couple of hundred years. But after he lived there during his lifetime, in fact, they renamed it. As I say, it fell into a state of almost total disrepair and was subsequently in the last probably decade, put back together, and it's worth going... So that is where he davened. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But Fustat itself has in it, side by side, two different power structures. They have different customs. They take their marching orders from different Chachomim who are in different countries. And some of the letter exchanges between these two groups have been preserved from the Geniza. And the quality of the relationship between the two orthodox or rabbinite communities, as they were called, is varied. When it came to mutual assistance, so you have Shlomo ben Yesef, the Gon of the Palestinian yeshiva in, in Jerusalem, he writes to the leaders of both communities in Cairo asking for the help. And there are several letters which are about fundraising to help the poor or release captives. And, you know, find uh, both rabbinite communities in Alexandria asking for help to raise money to ransom Jewish boys taken prisoners by pirates, which was a very real issue. Pidyan Shvuim was uh, very high up on the scale of charity, but their relationship was sometimes strained. The Palestinian community leader in Ramla, Shlomo ben Shama, writes an angry letter to Ephraim ben Shmaria, who was the president of the Eretz Yisrael community in Cairo. He complains about his bad manners, which as a result had people switch over to the other synagogue and to the Karite congregations, which I guess shows the fluidity of the affiliation of individuals to any particular shul. That's not something that's just around nowadays. And you actually find the leader of the Babylonian community in Cairo dramatically ends his connection with Pompadissa, proclaiming his loyalty to the Palestinian yeshiva. So, you know, he changes colors as a result of a conflict, a run-in he had with the head of Pompadissa yeshiva in 1006. But even more unusually, you find rabbinites becoming Karaites, and Karaites becoming Rabbinites. And it's not only because of religious conviction. You know, it becomes the shul I would never daven in, because, you know, you call that a kiddush. There was no herring. <laughs> and in, in 1030, there's a letter from a communal leader in Eretz Yisrael writing 
to the congregation in Fustat, warning him against treating his congregants high-handedly because they've received numerous letters, one of which contains the signatures of 30 witnesses complaining about the president and his son-in-law. And this is the politics of loyalty, I guess, and the different types of shawls there. And are these run by the Rabbonim of the time, or did the lay leaders have anything to say about it? So generally, the lay leaders had more to say about it, and they tended to be connected to the government. But within what we're saying, there was an individual who had to get involved in communal politics, even though he was a rabbi. And that is the person who was the leader of the entire Egyptian community, both the, so to speak, president and chief rabbi of Egypt. And in one particular case, that individual was Rabbeinu Avraham, the son of the Rambam. And he's described as a perfect man with a tragic fate. There is little that is generally known about this great individual, definitely before the Geniza discoveries. In fact, even his Svarim survive in, in parts only. With regards to his commentary on the Torah, we only have Bracious and Shmois. There are only a few chapters of his uh, magnum opus, which is Hamaspik uh, Laovde Hashem, those who strive for excellence in their service of God. But as the Rambam wrote that the elegance and the style of thought confirms Maimonides' characterization of his son as one of the most humble people, in addition to his other noble character traits. He is little known, born in 1186, taught by the Rambam personally. How old was he when his father passed? 18. He was very young, and he already fills his shoes at that age. He takes over um, uh, the side of being the personal physician to the sultan and the, the royal court, and he assumes the leadership of Egyptian Jewry. That actually happens a couple of years later, which means that all Jewish courts are under his jurisdiction, and he is responsible for appointing Rabonim, Dayonim, it would actually remain in the Maimonidean family for almost the next 200 years. Wow. And Rabbin Avram is answering questions from Eretz Yisrael, from Yemen, from Provence, from, you know, Baghdad, Syria, all over, although we only have about 130 of his responsor. He also um, had to deal with those people who were attacking his father, attacking the Rambam. He issued a sefer which defended his father's mission at Torah, the halachic work. And, of course, um, it was during his lifetime that there were all these polemics against the Rambam's views of philosophy, which we looked at in our series of Provence. And he writes Milchamois Hashem, and says that, you know, many of the French scholars were able to understand the Murnavuchim once they visited Egypt. What did you mean by he had a tragic fate? It sounded like he had a very fulfilling life. Well, first off, I would say he suffered the fate of great people who are the sons of even greater people. You know, the average Jew has never heard of him, even though he was a scholar of note. Also, he had to contend with petty politics. There were power struggles within the community. And in fact, there's 
a quite detailed letter in the Geniza written by a third party that tells of the battle between Rabino Avram and some powerful individuals within the community. Rabino Avram had made inroads into the religious lifestyle of the community in Cairo. One of the things that he did was bring the two types of congregation that we had described, Babylonian and Palestinian, into one single Babylonian style. And nowadays we all follow the Babylonian style because, the, for instance, the Palestinian Nusach was to complete the reading of the Torah only once every three years, the triennial cycle, which you know, no one does anymore. But his singular approach was not well received by those who were in the minority. What was pushing this? Um, for peace? Or did he just believe this was the right way? He actually believed halachically this was the right way. In other words, within the particular decisions of halacha, but also generally he believed it was right to have a singular approach. Possibly has to do with the fact that, for instance, the Rambam is of the opinion that there should be one overarching Bezdin in any city even if there are various communities. I don't know that it's necessarily related, but very likely that it is. And he also urged improvement in the way people pray. He felt there should be more preparation for prayer, more input into prayer. So, as I mentioned, he's the president of the community of Egypt. He's the chief rabbi. And, you know, what happens now, he's done things that uh, you in the minority don't want, But uh, what do you do if you're rich and powerful and not happy about being told what to do? Well, in this particular case, you go to the sultan, the Muslim sultan, and you rat on him. We actually know the names of the family involved. And interestingly, the complaint that this family raised against Rabino Avram was fed back to him. So he was fully aware of what was going on. And the complainant at first went to the grandson of Saladin, first with a verbal complaint, and then they come to him with a written complaint. But by the time they get there, it is the first day of Ramadan, and therefore they can't get to this grandson because he's fasting and he's in contemplation in his mosque. So they went straight to the sultan. What is the complaint against Rabbeinu Avram? that he has forced religious change on Jews. And the question was, does Islamic law allow changes in religious ritual, whether to the laws of Islam or to the laws of Judaism? And Rabbeinu Avram has to defend himself. He says, yeah, I did change the style to being single-faceted, which is not innovating something new. And I did encourage people to upgrade their prayer but these were encouraged changes, not ones which I imposed. And he gathers 200 signatures to back the fact that he had never forced these changes. I mean, you know, just imagine for a moment, we're talking about the God Lader, the leader of jury of that country, being dragged through the courts by a bunch of reprobates who've used secular law rather than halacha. You know, think about it. And it's preserved because we have this letter from the Geniza. Although, interestingly, the third party, the person writing this letter, recording the events of the two sides, was actually not in favor of these new acts of Hasidus, of Rabino Avram, as he calls it. And he doesn't like the fact that, you know, their new prayer groups would sort of started and following this trend. But either way, 
there's a call to Rebbeinu Avram that on Shabbos in Shul he should retaliate and excommunicate all of the family members who'd raised a complaint against him by going to a non-Jewish authority, which is, you know, a crime in halacha. And unsurprisingly, a very big crowd turned up in Shul on Shabbos to hear what was going to happen because Shiva World News wasn't around yet. <laughs> so they're all there in Shul. This is what the letter writer records, you know. But instead, Rabbeinu Avram deflected and said that what he would do is on the following Monday, he would excommunicate all those who had pledged to give large amounts to charity in order to appear, you know, the uh, philanthropist. And they'd pledged to give it to a particular synagogue and they've defaulted on their pledge. And this way, the excommunication wouldn't be personal. It wouldn't be related to something connected to him, but the failure to carry out a religious duty. Now, the other side, the other party said that all the 200 people who signed backing Rabbeinu Avram were all giving false testimony and they should be punished. And the punishment that they recommend was that their bids should be cut off. Wow. And... When Rabbeinu Avram refers to these people, they refer to themselves as Sar Shebasarim, the chief of chieftains. He calls them in Arabic Sar el Asar, which is a play on words and means the most evil of people. This conflict takes place sometime between 1232 and 1237. It rumbles on for some time. And it's apparent that during his lifetime, he did make headway in certain areas. But his drive to improve and change the style of prayer overall didn't outlast his own life. And even though his own son, David, took over, the changes didn't last. Although there were certain practices that he was successful at outlawing. He writes, you know, we eliminated it and blotted out all traces of it. So there were successes that he recorded. But, you know, his life was dogged by these incidents. And we would never have known about it. Correct. Well, so there were a lot of uh, public fights as part of the finds the Gniza. Well, obviously, Schechter, who finally returns to England in 1897, although by then he's actually become ill from all the dust in the Gniza and from the living conditions out there. But in August of 1897, he makes an announcement of his finds. Uh, it's um, a long piece in the Times newspaper but there are several inaccuracies, one or two of which were almost certainly deliberate and minimized the role of people like Elkin Adler and his letter, letter introduction. And the next day, the editor of the Times receives a letter and it reads as follows. I'll read it out to you. Sir, in the description of the ancient Geniza, Mr. Schechter omits to mention that the honour of the discovery of this treasure belongs to the learned librarian of the Bodleian, Dr. A. Neubauer, in other words, Oxford, who was the first to light upon it and to obtain a large number of important fragments for that library. He has published already some years ago a few of these documents and has placed others at the disposal of scholars. The other who went to that ancient synagogue 
was Elkin N. Adler, who not only brought last year very valuable manuscripts from there, but practically gave the key to it to Mr. Schechter in appointing the honours of the discovery we must be just and fair. <laughs> who, who, who wrote the letter? So the letter is anonymous. In fact, the identity is unknown to this day, but it's very likely to be a friend of Neubauer's, right. although Schechter immediately suspected Adler. And he replied three days later, and he downplays Adler's role in helping him. And he said, you know, Adler spent a total of a half an hour in the Evan Ezra shul, so... Um, That's a battle of egos. Yeah, that definitely fair to say that the egos got in the way of honesty. <laughs> um, and Adler later claimed that he'd received a promise from Schechter not to take anything away from Egypt. But that does seem a little far-fetched, because that's why he was going there. <laughs> Well, okay, that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much again. So next week we are wrapping up as the final episode. It sounds yes. to me like you've covered pretty much everything. What? So I want to deal with one more famous personality, but deal with two or three episodes in his life and other international geniuses and in a way their shocking history. Great, thank you. As usual, any feedback or comments can be sent to podcasts at jlee.org.uk. All the questions you've had about the Gnesa, this is your time before Rabbi Hirsch wraps up this subject. It's been generating a lot of interest, so any questions, Rabbi Hirsch will try and address them next week. Make sure you follow and subscribe on whatever streaming platform you are listening on, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>